0: Sports. It's as American as apple pie. We Americans love our sports, and it's not surprising that our presidents have been fans too. But even something like sports has become part of the political landscape. For decades, presidents have appeared at sporting events, and championship teams and gold medal winners have been invited to visit the White House. Athletes have become vocal about their political views and often endorse candidates for office. This wasn't always the case. And our listeners might be surprised to know that Richard Nixon was a pivotal figure in the nexus between American politics and sports. In this episode, as part of our series on Richard Nixon, we'll find out more about his role on America's cultural landscape.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.
0: Today's guest is Professor Nicholas Sarantakis. He is a historian and an associate professor in the Department of Strategy and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. He's the author of the book, Fan in Chief, Richard Nixon and American Sports, 1969 to 1974, where he talks about President Nixon's passion for sports and his unlikely role in sports history. As our listeners know, we're in a series on the Cold War. And we're currently examining Richard Nixon, and people love to cycle analyze Nixon, and are sometimes surprised to learn about some of the personal details of his life. That he, like millions of his fellow Americans, was a huge sports fan. So, Professor Sarantakis, thank you for joining us about this subject.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So, before we get into uh, the kind of the meat of your your research, one thing stood out to me, and that was that. Nixon had lost his brother at a young age, and this is kind of a deeply personal thing that happened. And there's a moment where he actually talks about the impact that had on him. And so when did he say this?
1: Uh, He said that in 1972 during a radio interview uh, that he gave that was related to his releasing his list of the greatest baseball players of all time. And he opened up about one of the players that he had picked, who he called the Profiles encourage Courage, uh, the uh, reference to Lou Gehrig, but he was talking about someone who had uh, battled tuberculosis, and he opens up about his brother's death. John Farrell, who wrote a brilliant Nixon biography, gets to it uh, in his book, but um, I actually had uh, Nixon saying it, so, you know, sometimes history works in little increments, but that was, I thought, really important because he finally came out and said what I had always expected was the truth.
0: And there's kind of this parallel uh, with President Kennedy, his brother, he had lost his brother and a lot is known about that. Not as much as known about Nixon, but it's kind of this moment where he kind of allows kind of a peek into the behind the curtain.
1: Yes. uh, And for some people losing a sibling is, you know, a um, life altering event and, you know, I lost a sibling. Uh, it happened very early in my life, so it was not as life-altering for me. But if you've, you know, if you're twelve, fifteen, nineteen, twenty-two, it could be detrimental or, or just a big watershed moment. So it's traumatic. understandable, traumatic, could alter how you do things. And I've certainly had deaths in my life that have changed my personality, my goals, my how I want to live my life. So. Yeah. I mean, that's just something that makes them human.
0: Right. Now, it's very interesting that you decided to take on this subject about Nixon's love for sports. And I've seen the list of books that you've published, and a lot of them are hard Cold War topics. So what got you into this aspect of his life?
1: Nixon released a list of the greatest baseball players of all time. He did it in 1972, and he was like picking the greatest first baseman, the greatest second baseman, and so forth. And what he did, he was at a press conference, and he was asked, can you pick you know, your greatest players? And he picked two guys who were first basemen, and he said, well, uh, I'll get back to that. Never mind. And the reporter kind of kept pushing and said, well, sir, if you came back in a week, could you do it? And by this time, Nixon had already kind of presented himself as, you know, sports fan number 1. He had started doing some things that people found a little odd at the time, which we now take as kind of given. He was the first person to or the first president to call teams after they won the big game. Uh, he was the first president to invite teams to the White House, which now seems quite commonplace, but at the time it was what's the president doing calling me? And John Wooden, the great UCLA basketball coach, said one of the highlights of his career was when Nixon called him. So he's gotten, he's started doing this kind of sports fan number one thing. And the reporter kind of pushed and said, well, sir, you know, if you do this, can you, and Nixon said, well, okay. And he spent a week of his uh, time. He spent a week in June of 72 putting together this list. And I'm like thinking, what in the world is a president of the United States doing basically playing fantasy baseball? And the answer was, it was politics. June of 72. It's baseball season, but it's also a presidential election year. And what I discovered, or what is very apparent up front, is instead of just picking the nine greatest players of all time, he picked a team for the American League and he picked a team for the National League. And he picked a team pre war and post war. So he ends up picking four teams. And it's not four teams of nine, it's, okay, here are my starters, and then here are my reserve players and my pitchers. So he ends up picking a lot of guys, and you start looking at it, and it's like, wow, you know, he needs, he needs a Polish-American. He needs, you know, a Hispanic. He needs an African-American, you know. So this was an exercise in political theater, and it got my attention, and I was like, what's going on here? Well, I was always gnawing at this, and I thought, you know, this is really interesting. And it gets to why Nixon gets himself elected over and over again, or at least gets himself on a national political ticket five times. The only person who's done that other than Nixon is FDR. So some people say it's Nixon as a political animal, but it's also Nixon knows how to connect with the American people. And one of the ways he did that was he presented himself as a sports fan, which he was. And I'd always, it was always in the back of my mind Uh, When Nixon died, there were all these people on talk shows calling in, praising him, and it all focused on foreign policy. No one talked about his domestic policies, and no one talked about him as a politician. So I said, you know, there's something here. And I ended up writing a dissertation on an important topic in U.S.-Japanese relations. But while I'm doing my dissertation research, I'm like at the National Archives, which at the time was where the Nixon White House records were kept. And I s- spent an afternoon saying, well, let me look at this. And they're like, they bring out the, the file, finding aids. And it's like, oh, okay, there's a sports file, which really was about the equivalent of two file cabinets worth of uh, memorandum and um, telegrams and documents of various sorts. And there was a lot on the baseball team. So I grabbed all this stuff. And actually, I wrote the, I wrote an article on this before I wrote my dissertation. So, um, it was something I started when I was in graduate school and I just kind of kept up, kept at it. And I went, when I went back to the national archives, I said, you know, let me grab all this stuff. I spent three weeks of doing research and it was great. And I, there was a lot of good stuff there, but there was, I needed to get other stuff and I went to other places and boom, I said, there's something here. I'm seeing a different Nixon.
0: That's fascinating because in hindsight, Post Watergate, Nixon's name has been associated so much with not just uh, the scandal, but kind of this persona of being almost like a, this sniveling, uh, paranoid ogre of a human being. And in some ways, there's some truth to that. You know, when you listen to the tapes, there's a lot of crudity and, and things of that nature. But you brought up the way he was on the national stage for so long. And so you have a man who somehow was successful in such a public uh, career. Uh, And and also, in addition to that, something as mundane that we take for granted for now, presidents invite sports teams over to the White House. I don't think I I didn't know that President Nixon started that. Yes, he did. Yeah.
1: And it's just an example of him. Some of it's political theater. He's being very calculating. But also some of it is just genuine. I'm a sports fan. I want to hang out with these cool guys. I want to tell them I I really enjoy watching them and they're, they're my heroes. And, um, it's, it's both. And with Nixon, you can't dismiss one or the other. You have to, it's the whole package. Right.
0: So. Talking about Nixon's own personal relationship with sports growing up, what sports did he play growing up? What sports did he love that, we, that he was passionate about, as opposed to those he he didn't care for?
1: Well, it's pretty much what it is, is baseball and football. Uh, those were the two sports that he really was fond of. He played college football at Whittier, uh, where he went to his undergraduate, and he was basically a tackling dummy. Uh, he never actually lettered in the sport. But he was the kind of guy who would just get up and try again, try again. He wasn't very big. Uh, he didn't have a big frame. He didn't have a lot of weight. So, but he was kind of like, "Come on, guys, let's go, let's go." And that inspired other teammates. Who was like, "Oh, I pulled a muscle," and it was like, "Well, you know, Nixon would love to get in there. Uh, he's trying as hard as he can. You know, don't be don't be a wimp. Get in there." So he was this great spark plug for his college football team. And actually, it's kind of funny. Uh, the college Whittier gives him. Uh, a letter in football just before he becomes president. So he eventually did letter. He just had to get himself elected to the white house. So, you know, I guess it's kind of difficult to get a a, a athletic letter from Whittier college, but um, he was a big football fan and he loved uh, baseball and professional baseball, uh, which, you know, at the time really was the national pastime. He watched it or he didn't watch it. He mainly followed it via radio and newspaper. He doesn't get to see a game in person until he's um, out of law school. Okay. So
0: w- what's interesting that you mention is he had relationships with some of the the greatest names in sports history. We're talking about the Ted Williams's, the Vince Lombardi's, uh, these these legends. So can you tell me about those relationships and how did they come about?
1: Some of this is a mutual admiration society. One of the interesting relationships he had was with jackie robinson uh, the great uh, brooklyn dodger who desegregated baseball was the first african-american player to play, play in in the major leagues uh nixon most people don't know this was actually a member of the naacp the national association for the advancement of colored people which in the 1950s was quite liberal uh robinson admired his you know stand on civil rights And uh, in 1960, Robinson endorsed him for president and even campaigned for him. And they remained, I'm not sure what the right word is, friends strong sounds a bit too strong, but they um, were close, at least professionally, for about 16 years, and then they had a falling out over civil rights. So that was one of them. Uh, Another relationship that Nixon developed really after he loses Uh, the presidency in 1960 and then a run for governor of California in 62 moves to New York. He becomes friends with uh, Frank Gifford, who at the time was a legendary player for the New York giants. Most people remember him now as being a sports broadcaster, but a great player. He was also from Southern California played for USC. So there was a a connection there. You mentioned Ted Williams. Williams was um, a Republican, certainly right of political center uh, there is a mutual admiration society and most people forget this, but Ted Williams, after he played baseball, he quit sport for a few years and then he came back and was a manager for the Washington Senators uh, and then goes and is the manager for the Texas Rangers and the team moves from Washington to Texas and changes their name. But he, the first year that Williams was a manager was the first year that Nixon was in the White House. So there was kind of like, boom, you know, these guys are there. Another relationship that he had was Vince Lombardi. He really admired Lombardi. And if you've ever studied Lombardi, he's a great coach, but he's also, there's a lot more to Lombardi than just being a great coach. Uh, he's almost this semi philosopher. I mean, he's an incredible individual. Um, and believe it or not, Nixon actually considered, picking Lombardi as his vice presidential uh, pick in 1968. He kind of has serious second thoughts about it when he learns that Lombardi is a rather uh, big-time liberal and was actually supporting uh, Robert Kennedy. But there's a lot to uh, Lombardi's character and his personality, and he was something more than just being a football coach. So there are a number of relationships there. And what's interesting is there are examples of players. Uh, there was one player who said, I want to meet Nixon. And he just, this is after Nixon's in, out of office and he goes to um, his um, residence and basically, you know, says, Hey, how's it going? And I, I'm going blank on the guy's name, but um, he says, I'm so-and-so and Nixon lets him in, boom, you know, and they end up chatting. So, and there was another time when he met um, Gail Sayers and they ended up just chatting and, um, you know, it was kind of like, wow, this is really interesting relationship. So essentially, if you were an athlete or you were a coach, you could get access to the president of the United States quite quickly in a way that most Americans can't.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounded like he was somebody that loved to be seen at sporting events. And uh, what were some of those big sporting events that he attended? I think one thing you mentioned was that it was almost like he would make these cameo appearances at these big games. You know, people know that he made the cameo appearance on the show laugh in, but apparently he, he was kind of a, a fixture at these games during his career.
1: Yes. Uh, Nixon, uh, particularly at first year in office, he goes to a lot of Washington, uh, senators games. Uh, he goes to a, uh, and that was, he'd show up and it was just, I'm a fan. I want to go. So, There was a lot of that, particularly in the first year. And for the first time in a very long time, the Washington Senators are winning. They don't get close to the playoffs. Playoff structure in baseball was very different back then, but they're winning. And they were a doormat team for a long time in the American League. So suddenly it's like, Senators are winning. And if Nixon ever had a team, it was the Washington Senators. So he goes to those and he has this thing. Uh, I never, I never leave until the last out. And I've been to a couple of games and I've like, wow, the lead changed between, you know, the top of the eighth, the bottom of the eighth and and then the top of the ninth. And I was just like, okay, I understand why Nixon said that, you know, at the beginning of the eighth inning, it looked like one team was going to win. And then, you know, it's very dramatic and given the structure of the sport, it can, it can dramatically change. So he would always go to Senator's games. Uh, He would sit in the stands and, um, just be one of the fans. He was not one to go in luxury boxes or sit sit on the sidelines. He also went to an American football league game. Uh, People forget that the American, uh, that there were two sports excuse me, there were two football leagues at that time. Uh, The American football league eventually merged with the national football league, but he went to a um, Oakland Raiders, Miami dolphins game. And he also went to a Washington Redskins game. Um, So he went to a number of games. One of the more famous ones that he went to was he went to the 1969 University of Texas, uh, University of Arkansas football game when the Longhorns and the Razorbacks were ranked first and second in the country. So they were essentially playing not only for the Southwest Conference title, but also for the national championship. And he shows up and he sits in the stands. And I have a whole chapter on that. Other people have written whole books on it. So uh, that's very dramatic, uh, a very famous thing. And then he goes to a couple other things. He goes to the 1970 all-star game and he goes to uh, baseball. uh, Yes. Baseball. Sorry. Yes. The 1970, um, uh, baseball all-star game. So there are a number of times when he does goes to these kind of events. He was not a big fan of uh, basketball. Some of this, most people don't know this, but he had two fake teeth. Uh, he had had his teeth knocked out in a basketball game. And, um, you know, kind of was averse to the sport ever since. Tra-
0: traumatized by basketball.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he went to the 1932 uh, Los Angeles Summer Olympics and said he was bored out of his skull. Um, so he really wasn't interested in, you know, track and field sports. And to be honest, most Americans aren't. So uh, they are during the Olympics and then they're, they tend to forget about them. Um, so those were the kind of sports that he was interested in.
0: That's interesting because uh, the sport I'm most familiar with is basketball. So I remember reading that uh, Wilt Chamberlain, one of the greatest NBA players of all time, was a Nixon supporter. Yes, he
1: was. And uh, he Nixon watched the Lakers game and it's actually caught on tape. He's like, wow, they were majestic and all this sort of stuff. And it's interesting. And then he basically doesn't go to another game for about, uh, almost uh, 20 years. He, he finally goes to another NBA. He goes to an NBA game in the early 90s. And he Duke is also uh, winning in sports in the early 90s through winning, going to the Final Four. And since he went to law school at Duke, he's now a Duke Blue Devil fan. So he um, right. he kind of adopted basketball or at least got a little interested in it late in life.
0: Sure. Now, you talk about his... Desire to and maneuvering to try to get the Olympics in the United States, uh, especially the 1976 one for the bicentennial. Could you talk about that and what happened?
1: Yeah. Los Angeles wanted the Summer Olympics and they wanted the Summer Olympics in 1976. And the story of Los Angeles getting the Summer Olympics is long and complicated. uh, But the long gist of it is the people trying to organize the Olympics in Southern California, had some contacts uh, con- contacts at the White House. One of them had been in business with H.R. Haldeman, who's White House Chief of Staff. So they contact Haldeman and basically say, hey, we're in a contest, and, oh, by the way, one of the other cities bidding for this is Moscow. So whether you like it or not, we're in a contest with the Soviet Union. Well, that got Haldeman's attention, He takes it to Nixon, and that got Nixon's attention. And they basically said, we got to do this. Now, the Nixon administration makes some really big fundamental mistakes in trying to do this. They assume that the International Olympic Committee is an athletic version of the UN. So they start lobbying ambassadors, and they say, okay. And there's actually memo traffic where they say, you got to go to the Belgian ambassador, the Italian ambassador, uh, the French ambassador and squeeze them and make sure that we have f- the vote of Italy and France and Belgium for the 1976 Olympics. Okay. Well, there are a lot of problems with that. One of them is that the international Olympic committee is a private organization. It is not a representative organization. It, the people who get on the committee are selected by current members of the committee there is no rule that every country in the Olympic movement must be represented and many are not. So for example, one of the rules is, is that unless your country has hosted the Olympics, only one person from that nation may be on that. So there is only one Irish member of the IOC. And actually today there might be no members. Uh, There are two British members because Britain has hosted the Olympics. There are two French, uh, there are two Americans. Okay. So, Okay, got that. Um, since it's a private organization, most of them don't have contacts with uh, the governments. Now, this is during the Cold War, so the East German Olympic Committee and the Polish Olympic Committee and the Soviet Olympic Committee, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, they do what their government or the Communist Party tells them to do. Okay, got it. But you can go lobby the uh, ambassador, and he goes back to the foreign ministry, you know, writes some cable, uh, telegrams. They come back and say, yes, we support it. But that doesn't mean that you've got the French guy on the uh, IOC voting for the Olympics. So they kind of learn painfully these lessons. And Haldeman assigns a guy to basically be in charge of running uh, the Olympic effort. Uh, his name is Charles Stewart. And he basically is learning the Olympic movement at the same time. And he basically proposes Nixon and Haldeman agree that they should bribe members of the international Olympic committee to get their vote. And there is memo traffic. It's in Haldeman's files. They bribe members of the IOC. They don't actually give them individual, like here's $10,000, but it's like the Panamanian on the committee wants this. So they give, you know, uh, track programs as a, bring in some track coaches to get trained at USC. Uh, the uh, Nicaraguan member or the guy from Nicaragua wants this. So give him that. And it was like, well, uh, they want to have, they want to have Nicaraguan athletes compete at the, uh, in some athletic event in the United States. So it's kind of most of the bribing and I'm putting that in air quotes uh, is basically Not personal bribes in the sense of here's, you know, a graph that you can put in your bank account, but it's bolstering the athletic programs in their countries. Okay, long story made short, the IOC votes in 1970 uh, to give the 76 Olympics to Montreal. And there's a reason for that. There were only three countries that want, excuse me, there are only three cities that wanted to host the Olympics in the entire decade of the 1970s they are Montreal, Moscow, and Los Angeles. And in 1970, the IOC did not want to be forced to pick between a US city and a Soviet city. So they pick a Canadian city. Well, fast forward 4 years later, there's only there're only two countries, excuse me, there're only two cities bidding to host the 1980 Olympics, Moscow and Los Angeles. Okay, well the IOC has to bite the bullet and they pick they picked Moscow. And then four years later, in 1978, there's only one city that's bidding to host the 84 Olympics, and that's Los Angeles. So the IOC didn't really care or the bribing of IOC members didn't really make a difference. Uh, the Nixon administration learned quickly you know, how the structure of international sport is done, something that the Carter administration, when they decide to boycott the 1980 Olympics, didn't understand it doesn't learn so uh, and you they wrote f- a
0: book on that topic too yes which yes, could I be did. its own episode too or its own interview it could be <laughs> that's fascinating so uh it, this is very simplified but it, it seems like uh Nixon had a harder time with uh, the international Olympic landscape than he did getting to Mao and to Brezhnev apparently
1: yeah because it's structured differently um There are, I forget what the magic number is today, but there's something like 187 members of the Olympic movement. They each have their National uh, Olympic Committee. Some of those are not nation states. For example, if you are a citizen of the United States, you can compete for one of four National Olympic Committees. You can compete for the U.S. Olympic Committee, the Puerto Rican Olympic Committee, um, the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands Olympic Committee, or the Guam Olympic Committee. Uh, Now, with three of those, you actually have to be resident in those pieces of real estate. But um, or you can if you're on one of the live one of those places, you can just go compete for a spot on the U.S. team. So they do not necessarily correspond to the nation state. And there are many, like I said, many nations that are not represented on the IOC. And it's not a federal system. Uh, The people who are on the IOC are picked by, by other IOC members. It's much like a country club or a yacht club. So, uh, and there are many people, many nations, if you want to call it representing. And again, I'm putting that in air quotes. They're not on the committee. And in fact, the committee likes to say that the members of the committee are ambassadors of the Olympic movement to their, their home nation. Okay. And I'm kind of saying that sarcastically, uh, a lot of the people on the committee are rich and powerful. Uh, the rule of thumb is you ha- you pr- have to be have such status that the head of state returns your phone call within a day. I'm here to tell you right now today, the members of the U.S. Olympic Committee, or excuse me, the member the, U- the Americans on the Olympic Com- the IOC probably could not get their phone call returned within 24 hours, and I suspect that was probably the case uh, in the seventies when Nixon was there. Hmm.
0: So you mentioned the Washington senators, uh, at one of the teams that Nixon supported. You've also said that Nixon was kind of a floating fan. He would support some teams different times in his life, in his life. And he also moved
1: around. So who, who were his teams? Essentially he had kind of this philosophy of I'll root for the home team of wherever I'm living. So for a long time, he was a fan of the Rams uh, pr- uh, after they moved from Cleveland to Los Angeles because he's from Southern California. Um, while he's in politics, he's a fan of the Washington Senators. And the Senators stay in Washington until 1972. Excuse me. they Well, they leave in 71. They, they become the Texas Rangers in 72. So um, he's a big Senators fan, while he's in Congress and while he's vice president, uh, he moves to New York uh, in the sixties after he loses uh, the election in 1960 and his run for governor of California in 1962. So he becomes a New York giants fan. He is a New York Mets fan, particularly after he moves to New Jersey, after he's out of office, when the senators leave DC, He basically has to find a new home team and at least in baseball, that is the California angels. There's an interesting conversation between him and Haldeman about why he's not going to pick the Dodgers. And it was basically, he was afraid that the fans at Dodger stadium would be more democratic than Republican. And he felt he had a safer bet of getting a warmer reception in Anaheim than he did in Los Angeles. So, and he's a Washington Redskins fan for a number of reasons, uh, a big Redskins fan when he's vice president and when he's president and he also kind of adopts the Miami Dolphins as his home team because he has a residence in Florida for a time. So those are kind of his home teams.
0: Yeah, there's a famous photo of him, well I don't know how famous it is, but I've seen a photo of him with I think uh with the Orioles and they're celebrating in the locker room and Nixon's getting champagne or beer poured on him. It's, it's such a, I think it was with the Orioles, but it's such a funny image of him because I think he's even in his suit, but then, you know, and, and uh, the, the Orioles are celebrating and there's Richard Nixon. So I don't know. Have you, have you seen that photo?
1: No, I can't say that I have, but that makes complete sense. I mean, Nixon was for whatever reason, an awkward, stiff, clumsy guy. And that's just the, how he was Mm -hmm. and I have seen video of him walking into locker rooms and he gets a little relaxed when he's in the locker rooms. And then when the cameras go on, he becomes the stiff, awkward Nixon that we know and love or don't love. So I'm not sure what it is, but he, he enjoyed this and he was not a particularly gifted athlete and he doesn't try and make himself uh, into an athlete. He's not Trying to you know play pickup games of basketball the way President Obama did with some guys uh, when he you know with White House staff or you know when he's touring military bases Nixon was presenting himself as a fan and he had no problem saying I'm watched sitting in front of a television watching it but uh, he did get opportunities to you know interact with the athletes and you know it was kind of for him a little bit of a Walter Mitty fantasy hmm. so.
0: I had lived in D.C. for a while, and I have a lot of friends who are Redskins fans, and you talk us about a story when he visits the Redskins locker room. Can you talk more about that episode?
1: Uh, I think you're referring to the time he visits the practice.
0: Oh, yes, the practice, yes.
1: Yeah, so um, the Redskins had been an uh, underperforming team for many years. Uh, They hire Vince Lombardi. People forget this. Lombardi stopped coaching the Packers. He's out of football for a year or two, and then he decides he wants to coach. He goes to the Redskins. They win for the first time in like a decade. And then Lombardi uh, gets sick with cancer and dies. Uh, One of his assistants takes over. They revert back to form. They get rid of him, and they hire George Allen. Now, Nixon loved George Allen, George Allen had been the head coach of the Los Angeles Rams. But before that he had been the head coach of the Whittier college football team. So there is that there's a Whittier connection and he loves Allen. Allen comes in and he turns the team around again and they start winning. Um, And everyone's loving it because the Redskins are winning and you know, people love a winner over a loser. Okay. So, Uh, They're winning on, they're going on a tear. It looks like they're going to enter in the playoffs and then they just get humiliated by the Dallas Cowboys. Okay. And this was at the beginning of their run dominating the 1970s. So Roger Staubach, their quarterback, Tom Landry's the coach. They're humiliated at RFK stadium in DC and they are booed. Well, Nixon had a deal with George Allen that he would come visit the practice at some time. And Nixon realizes, boom, this is the time I need to come. So he decides to go. The only person who's informed about this is George Allen. And the first time the players realize that Nixon is visiting them is when they see him walking across the practice field. Okay, Even in D.C., the president of the United States visiting your uh, practice is a big thing. And these guys are demoralized. Their fans have turned on him. And he basically sits there and says, listen, you've done good for this city. It's a city that doesn't have a lot of bonds. A lot, people come and go. You are a unifying force. We are behind you. And, you know, he's trying to deliver a message. You, There were a couple angry people there. You know, forget them. Don't worry about them. And, then, you know, people are like, wow. And George Allen's manipulating the situation. He's getting people to pose for photographs. Uh, It turns out, I mean, a lot of the guys on the Redskins are not Republicans and some of them don't want to, don't want to pose pictures with him and stuff like this. But for the most part, he, when Nixon really isn't trying to do anything political with this, he's just trying to be a good fan and kind of bolster their spirits. And George Allen calls him and says, this was fantastic. He did great work. And the white house tapes are fantastic for phone conversations. So you know, I listen I listened to that conversation you know Alan is just telling them you did great stuff you turned it around etc cetera, etc cetera. so they go back on a tear and they start winning so and this gets a lot of attention at the time their pictures front on the front page of the Washington newspapers there were at that time two newspapers not on the front page of the sports section on the front page of the paper and it gets a lot of attention and um, Nixon feels pretty good about it so, and he just chats with people and Nixon his only hobby is sports. So he's like talking to people and saying, Hey, I remember you, you were, you played at Duke and now you were there a couple of years after me, blah, blah, blah. But you know, and he's just talking to the players and they're like, wow. So even if you're not going to vote for him, it's still pretty cool to have the president come visit. And in that sense, you know, people put aside their politics and they they just say, wow, this is cool. This is neat. This is, you know, this isn't happening to the Dallas Cowboys.
0: Hmm. Yeah, he was a real, it sounds like he was a genuine sports junkie. And Mm -hmm. today he would have been a fantasy football, fantasy basketball, or maybe not basketball, fantasy baseball person. I Um, mm -hmm.
1: I think so. I mean, one of the things he did was when he went to a game, he actually had the box scores and he'd fill it in. And he said it helped follow the game. and. You know, this is a guy who actually knew what he was talking about when it came to the sport of baseball and football. He was not just a, you know, fan. It was the one thing. And I mean, he could pull stats and say, oh, yeah, I remember him. He played for University of Miami. And they're like, oh, my goodness. How do you remember this? Well, if it's the only other recreation that you have, boom.
0: Right. Now, did he have much of a relationship with John Wooden? I know you've mentioned him a little bit here and there.
1: No, not really. In, in fact, one of the um, NCA tournaments is played in College Park and they no one goes to that. A lot of his uh, main subordinates are UCLA Bruin Bears or, or alumni of uh, UCLA. So no. Um, okay. Wouldn't I know votes for Nixon, but other than a phone call and a letter, that's about it.
0: And uh, I think you also mentioned Joe Paterno, the Penn State coach. What, what, what was that relationship like?
1: Very minimal. Um, and uh, some of this goes back to 69. One of the things, and I did my undergraduate at the university of Texas, so I have no problem with what happens, but my cousin went to Penn state and he, he does. At the end of 1969, there are three teams that are undefeated, Texas, Arkansas, and Penn state. Penn State in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies is still up and coming. It's East Coast football, which is always kind of diminished. You know, the real power football is in the South. It's in, it's in Texas. Texas and Arkansas are established football powers. Both have faded a bit over the years, but the system that was in place was basically the uh, news polls or news associations, the Associated Press. And United Press International had uh, polls that ranked the, the teams. Those tend to favor established football powers. So, since Penn State was kind of up and coming, it's had a weak history, they kind of got, they didn't get the benefit of the doubt. So, they had finished undefeated in uh, the previous year, 1968, and they didn't get the national championship. They finished second to Ohio State. Well, when the season starts, they're, they finished, they're, below Texas and Arkansas and Southern California and Ohio state. Well, all those teams lose except for Texas and Arkansas. And then Arkansas loses to Texas at the end of the season. So what you have is an undefeated Texas Longhorn team that Nixon goes into the locker room after that game and gives them a plaque and declares them national champs. Joe Paterno's sitting there going, Hey, wait a minute. My guys are undefeated. We're going to the orange bowl. What's going on here? Hold off. Okay. Well, the and the, at the time, this the system was whoever is number one at the end of this uh, end of the regular season is the national champ, and it changes a little in the seventies and eighties. So whoever is number one at the end of the bowl season is the national champ, and this is just by voting, by journalists voting. So it's not really determined by play on the field. Sometimes a little. Paterno is really kind of. About that. And he's like, I got an undefeated team. We've gone undefeated two years in a row. Come on, give me a break. He meets with Nixon. Nixon invites him to the White House a year later. Paterno has the good decency not to mention it, but he gives the commencement speech in 74 uh, to Penn State. He cracks this line. It's like, wow, I president Nixon knows a lot about football too bad. He doesn't know a lot about Watergate and he gets this huge laugh. It's a great line. I think it's in the book, but, um, and it's better than what I just said. But, um, even though Paterno was kind of a right of center, Republican voting kind of guy, uh, he was not particularly close to Nixon and he had a bit of a grievance, if you will. Hmm.
0: So Nixon is the president who signs in title nine in Mm -hmm. 1972 major civil rights legislation, uh, promoting women's athletics, basically changing women's athletics in the United States. How did that come about? What did he think about the legislation? It it seems like he's kind of an unlikely figure in that story.
1: He is, and he has very little to do with it. Uh, Most of this is done by Congress, and it's kind of funny It tells you how the American people kind of give the benefit of the doubt or kind of gravitate to the White House. Most of the work was done by members of Congress, their staff, etc. Nixon had very little to do with it. The bill comes to him. He signs it. He signs it because he's not about to veto a civil rights bill. Now, he looks at this. He looks at Title IX. And the story of Title IX is no one really foresaw what it did. Okay, The ramifications take about two or three years to really fully develop. Well, Nixon saw what was coming and he said, this will kill college football. This will kill college athletics. And in a sense, he's right. It doesn't co- kill college football because college football makes money in, in a in a big way. And they pay for a lot of the other sports that don't make money, uh, including a lot of the women's sports. But what happens is a lot of schools suddenly have this mandate, uh, and what it comes down to, there's a bit more to it than this, but essentially if you give a hundred scholarships to men, you have to give a hundred scholarships to women. So, okay. So one of the ways that schools deal with this is they cut programs that are not popular or that are not, you know, um, have a lot of people involved. So instead of like giving a hundred scholarships to women, What they do is they cut the track team. They cut the lacrosse team, the golf team, and they lower it to say, we now have 60 scholarships. So we'll give 60 scholarships to guys and 60 scholarships to women. So they, they kill a lot of men's sports to get around having to raise the number of women's sports. So Nixon saw this. He was afraid that it would really damage football. It doesn't because of football's money-making power, but He signs it anyway. His attitude is, I'm not about to veto a a civil rights bill. And here's the thing. When we talk about Nixon, we have to kind of separate the sound from the substance. So he's a great campaigner, and he seems to, at first glance, have a rather bad record on civil rights. But he never vetoed a civil rights bill, which is something some of his predecessors can't say. And when he comes into office, he throws an incredible amount of money at the just uh, the civil rights division of the Justice Department, and it goes from having a budget of something like twenty-five million or fifty million to over a billion dollars. Okay, that's a billion with a buh. Okay, so a lot of people are like, "Oh, he's opposing busing." Okay, maybe. He gives, you know, he kind of, he nominates a couple of judges who were not the best on um, civil rights, but he empowers his justice department in a very big way. So when it gets to title nine, he sees what's coming and he still signs it, even though he doesn't like it. So hmm. complicated so, legacy.
0: So after doing this research, writing this book on, on Nixon, after studying his history with sports, how has this changed how you view Nixon and how do you want people to look at him uh, with this, this knowledge about him?
1: I spent about six weeks listening to the white house tapes and that was a blast. It was actually one of the highlights of my career because it's like the West wing, except it's real. Okay. Now, it's 50 years later, but it's still it's real. And Nixon comes across as a very smart guy. He knows his politics, and in one sense, you go, "What happened? Why Watergate? It's so stupid." At the same time, I'm clicking and going to these various conversations, uh, bouncing around, and. You can hear him just plotting some of the most malicious things in politics possible until fairly recently. Nixon is a complicated guy. I think he's human. He's There's a lot of substance to him. He does a lot of good. There is He does some damage too. And I think if what really you have to do is just Look at him in the whole picture. In many ways, he's a one-man Greek tragedy. The very skills that got him to the top of the political profession are the things that bring him down. His ability to personalize things, his ability to never say quit. Uh, So it's, it's a very complicated story. So I think you see Nixon more or less at his best when you see him interacting with sport. But you also see the damage that Watergate did because he pulls himself away from this area. He doesn't interact in a s in social policy the way he did with Title IX, the way he did with a couple other things. So I think you know, when you look at him through this venue, you see you see a lot of strengths of the guy, but you also see some of some of his weaknesses. And I'll just leave it at that.
0: It sounds like it adds to kind of the complex tapestry of his life and his story.
1: Nixon is a very complex guy, which is just like saying Nixon breathes air. Um, Nixon does a lot of good. And everyone I've met who worked with him, love him. With that said, George Lucas, who creates Star Wars, models the evil emperor after Nixon. So, there's good, there's there's bad. And I I enjoyed listening to the tapes. It was a blast, but sometimes you just go, why did you have to do that? Why? Mm-hmm. And then one sense it kind of breaks your heart. I mean, it doesn't seem like it had to be that way. So mm-hmm. I'll just leave it at that. Well, thank you. The book is called Fan in
0: Chief, Richard Nixon and American Sports, 1969 to 1974. Professor Sanantekus, thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. This was, was this was fun.
0: This American president
1: is produced by myself
0: Richard Lim and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hello, my name is Peter Zablaki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.